Good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're just joining us, thank you for being here. We know that there are a lot of places you can be this morning, a lot of online experiences you can have, and we're blessed and honored that you chose to be with us. Before we get started this morning, I want to take just a moment and give you some good news in case you haven't heard it already, that next week we will be meeting in person. Um, next week we will begin the reopening process. We have uh, a lot of things in place. If you want to go to the website or the Facebook page, you can find detailed reopening plans. Um, and so I want to say if, uh, if you're ready for that, we, we are ready to host you. If you're not, if you're vulnerable, if you're high risk, if you're just flat not comfortable, stay home. I want to encourage you that uh, no judgment will come to you. Nobody will think anything less of you. In fact, uh, the streaming service will still be happening on Facebook and YouTube, and you can still watch from the comfort of your own home, and uh, we will be pleased to have you join us. So check out the website, check out the Facebook for more information on that, and we look forward to seeing some of you next week. Um, as we get into our study of Philippians, uh, I want to talk about a guy named Wells Crowther. Wells Crowther, from the time he was six years old, carried a red bandana. Um, his dad taught him when he was little that the white handkerchief he carried in his suit was for show, but the red bandana was for blow. And he took that to heart. And so Wells carried that thing with him his whole life. When he was 16 and he volunteered at the Empire Hook and Ladder Company to work with his father, he carried that thing with him. When he went to college at Boston College, he wore it underneath his helmet when he played lacrosse. And finally, when he graduated and he went to work as an equities trader, he still carried that red bandana in his pocket. He didn't take it out much because in a world of Italian suits and silk handkerchiefs, the red bandana didn't really fit in. But he kept it with him. And he had it with him on September 11th when... An airplane slammed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center while Wells was working. Seven floors below Wells' office, Lynn Young wiped blood from her glasses and looked around at a scene from a nightmare. Debris, smoke, fire, bodies. It was an awful situation. She was paralyzed by fear, and all she can remember is smoke, not being able to see anything until she sees a shadow emerge. And this shadow materializes into a man who's wearing a red bandana tied around his face. The young man says, come with me, I know the way to the stairs. And he takes Lynn and a group of others down eight flights to where the firefighters meet them. And he turns them over to him, and as Lynn turns to thank him, he's already gone back up the stairs. Elizabeth Hancock was in the second group that Wells found. Still wearing his red bandana around his face, he found her and her friends and led them down 10 flights of stairs to the firefighters below. Nobody knows how many times Wells went up and down those stairs bringing people to safety. His body was found among a group of firefighters with the red bandana still on his face. That red bandana today is displayed in the September 11th Museum because it is a representative of giving up yourself for others. 
When we left off with Paul, that's what he was talking about in Philippians. He was talking about giving up yourself for others, valuing others with this infinite worth that Christ valued us. That's, that's where we left him. And Paul's writing this from prison. He's writing this from jail. He's been put there because he's preaching the gospel. He has a little bit of an idea of what he's talking about. And so as he moves on through this letter in chapter 2, we find him really bearing down on this idea of selflessness. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's anything, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The same thing Jesus prays for, Paul prays for this church. Unity. Being of the same mind. Being of one accord. Being united. And if you've been around churches very much, you realize that doesn't happen a whole lot. It's hard to be of one mind, isn't it? I mean, how do we do that? Well, I think we've got to dig a little deeper. Because I think we can have disagreements like Paul had with Barnabas or with Peter or with James or with, I mean, Paul was a pretty disagreeable fellow. So I don't think he's saying we can't just dis not disagree. How do we live in full accord with one mind? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider others, count others more significant than yourselves. In 1665, a tailor's assistant brought a batch of flea-infested blankets to a small town of Eum in England. And soon, many of the estimated 800 residents of Eum were infected with the Black Plague. The Black Plague had been running through Europe for years, killing thousands of people. And Eum's rector, William Mompesson, along with the previous rector, decided to quarantine the village. They set out stones that, that put the boundary of Eum and for 14 months, nobody went in or out of this village. Food was left at the boundary stone by nearby townspeople. Um, the death rate skyrocketed. One woman, Elizabeth Hancock, buried six of her children and her husband within one month. To limit infections, church services were held outdoors. Villagers left their homes to live outside in tents. Um, and by the plague's end, 260 of Eum's 800 residents were dead. But the villagers' self-sacrifice worked. It kept the plague contained and kept it from spreading to the rest of England. Eum's survivors wrote in a history of the village that they should admire their ancestors, quote, who in a sublime, unparalleled resolution gave up their lives, yea, doomed themselves to death to save the surrounding country. Count others more significant than yourselves. See, there's no caveats here. There's no, well, except for, or yeah, but, it's not there. Count others more significant than yourselves. And I'm going to be honest with you. 
That's hard. I have people tell me all the time, well, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. Then you don't understand Christianity because this is hard. Count others more significant than yourselves? Let me tell you how, what that means. That means the Democrat is more significant than yourself. That means the Republican is more significant than yourself. That means the homosexual, the immigrant, the Muslim, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, or the guy who cuts you off in traffic is supposed to be counted more significant than yourself. You starting to see how hard that is? It means the people looting that you don't agree with need to be counted more significant than yourself. It means the Racists need to be kept. That's hard, y'all. That's not easy stuff. And you read this and you go, Paul, I don't, I, I don't know that I can do this. Because what you're preaching to me is not just hard. It may be impossible. But watch what he does here in the next section. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Did you get that? He was in the form of God. That's top of the food chain, y'all. It don't get any higher than that. In the form of God. It means he was God. And he didn't consider that something worth holding on to. That worth. Remember we talked about that worth? That you were worth more than Godhood. That the people that you see around you were worth more than Godhood. That's pretty huge. He emptied himself. The King James Version renders that of no reputation. Now, King James also renders it a bunch of different ways. And I want to give you these because I think this gives you a better picture of what he's talking about. Romans 4.14, the same word is made void. 1 Corinthians 1.17, the same word of none effect. 1 Corinthians 9.15, same word, void. 2 Corinthians 9.3, in vain. So get that picture, emptiness, no effect, no reputation, void, in vain. Modern churches don't really preach that, do we? You hear a lot about contending for the faith, and you hear about standing for what you believe in. You don't hear a lot about of no reputation, of emptiness, void. This refers back to Paul's earlier talking about worth and worthiness. A life of selfish ambition and conceit is based on worshiping me. We worship ourselves and put our needs and desires up on this plane at the top of our priorities and Paul is saying you've got to empty yourself of that just like Jesus did on the cross Jesus could have chose none of it but he gave up himself and instead chose all of it and here's the deal it is impossible 
It is hard. Because it's not natural. Look at a two-year-old. Two-year-olds don't have to be told to be selfish. Right? Toddlers, everything is mine. You don't have to teach them that. It's natural. What Paul is calling us here is supernatural. It's not normal. It's not easy. Paul's talking about a a denial of self, a, a death to self even. That's why he points us to the cross. Because the cross is supernatural. The cross is is beyond our understanding or our ability. I know what happened at the cross, but I can't tell you how it happened because it's supernatural. It's beyond my ability. Paul reminds us of grace and that God in in power grants us the supernatural ability to live cross-centered lives. It's not just an example. It's not just a memorial. The cross is the power that gives life to my mortal body. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For years, this verse has thrown people. For years, this verse has become a a, a mantra of those who would would advocate a works-based salvation, that I need to work out my salvation. But that's not what he's talking about. He's He's not talking to people who need to be saved. He's talking to a church of people who's already redeemed. So get that. He's not saying this is about some kind of work you can do to be acceptable to God. He is not talking to unbelievers. So when we look at this, a better translation might be, God is the one working in you. Both the willing and the working. The Greek word translated work is is the source of where we get our word energy. Where we get our word energize. So God is not just giving us the desire. He's giving us the power, the energy to do this. This is not an example for us to follow or a checklist for us to try to achieve. It's the power by which we live out this supernatural mind of Christ. The the salvation we're to work out is not about our private individual relationship with God. It's it's the quality of corporate life lived under the rule of the Savior. Paul, Paul is describing this quality of life in terms of this mutual love and affection. Sharing in the Spirit, unity, humility, putting others first. And and all of this is in Christ. God is at work within you. His will is at work within your spirit to empower you to serve and to seek the cross. And it's in the cross that we find forgiveness and that we find service, sacrifice. It's there that we find the empowerment to live out this supernatural life. It's the Spirit of God at work in you which leads you to the cross. Because Paul, for Paul, the only thing that's worth anything is Jesus. We talked about that last week. He is so Christ-centered that nothing else matters. To live is Christ, to die is gain, no matter what. And he wants the Philippian church to follow along that path. Look at what he's going to call them to do here, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you all should be glad and rejoice with me. See, for Paul, it's all about exalting Christ. It's all about lifting up Jesus, exhibiting the greatness of Jesus to a crooked and perverse generation. That's the outcome of all this, the service, the sacrifice, the, the selflessness that Paul is calling this church to exalting Christ. When Paul talks about a drink offering, he, he's still talking about his death. He's talking about being poured out. Now go look on Amazon at all the books available for pastors, preachers, church leaders about how to grow, you, grow the church, how to lead the church. There are very few that are going to teach emptiness, void, self-sacrifice. It's not there. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not normal. It's contradictory to everything in here. But it's the key to lifting up the gospel and the exaltation of Jesus. Paul says we as the church are to shine like lights in a dark world. We as the church are the light in the darkness. How do you do that? Well, Paul says you be like Christ. Emptying, selfless, no effect, no reputation, void. But that's not a natural state. We can't do that on our own power. We have to work out our salvation through the power of the cross, through the energy of the cross. That's the only way this happens. The only way. This week, if you've been on social media, you've seen everybody talking about the racial divisions in our country. And everybody's got an opinion on how to fix it. And everybody thinks we should do this or we should do that. I would submit that Paul's way, stop worrying about me. Start worrying about everybody else. Emptiness. Void, self-sacrifice. That's the power. And that's how we shine as lights in a dark world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you, Lord, that we fall so short of this. We are not able to do this apart from you. We can't be like Jesus on our own power. We need you to energize us. We need you to fill us with supernatural power. We need your Holy Spirit to give us the ability to live in such a way that we shine like stars in a dark world. Lord, bless us with your presence, with your power, with your vision that we can see the world around us the way you see the world around us. Forgive us when we fail you, Lord, because we mess up a lot, and we need that. We need that forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you bind us together, that you bring us in the same mind, in unity, to reach out into this world and to glorify Jesus, and to do everything that we do to the glory and honor of your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray.